Well, do keep your Bibles open at uh, Isaiah 66 as we come to the end of uh, this wonderful uh, prophecy this evening. Uh, On the morning of the 1st of November 1755, a long, long time ago, but on that morning the Portuguese city of Lisbon was struck by an earthquake. It was All Saints Day and so churches were full of worshippers. Within just six minutes, 15,000 people had died. Within a week, the death toll had doubled to 30,000, and one of Europe's great cities lay in ruins. The French philosopher Voltaire, who was already pretty hostile towards Christianity, saw this tragedy as absolute proof, beyond any doubt whatsoever, that it was impossible for any reasonable or intelligent person to believe in God. How could a good and all-powerful God create a world like this, he reasoned. Isn't it painfully obvious, he asked, that this world is not right? And astonishingly, God agrees with Voltaire. Now that is a sentence you won't hear very often in church. But God agrees with him. This world is not what he had in mind at creation. But he is going to do something about it. In fact, God has done something about it and is continuing to do something about it, just as we saw this morning in Genesis 8 and 9. And these two messages uh, that I've been preparing throughout the course of this week, these two passages dovetail uh, together so wonderfully. God is not just going to patch things up. He is going to completely renew the cosmos. And this final chapter of Isaiah is his ultimate answer to our longings for God to intervene, for God to do something about the mess. And as he closes his book, Isaiah returns to the theme of worship. It's a theme that he has picked up on before throughout his ministry. And he returns to this theme of worship right at the end of his book because ultimately that is what we were created for. And that is what God is going to recreate things for. That is God's design for the world. And what is wrong with the world, all that is wrong with the world is worship that has gone badly wrong. Worship that has been disrupted and destroyed by sin. The perfect worship that existed in the Garden of Eden that was broken by sin. The Garden Paradise that became a crime scene. And the God who is sidelined, who is dethroned by human sin, is under no obligation whatsoever to do anything about it. And yet he graciously put into action a plan of redemption. A plan by which true worship can be restored. Isaiah has shown us that that plan involved God himself coming to earth. Back in chapter 7, Isaiah foresaw the time when a baby will be born to a virgin. A baby who will be called Emmanuel. He's shown us that God in the flesh will be none other than a suffering servant. A servant who will die and yet be glorified. And in these final chapters that we've been uh, considering over recent weeks, 
Isaiah has been describing the, the expectant life of God's redeemed people. And essentially that is the big picture of the Bible. It's a picture that Isaiah captures and illuminates throughout his 66 chapters. He's answering the question, can the worship of God that has gone so badly wrong, can the worship of God be restored? And what does it actually mean to be able to worship the Lord? Is the world so broken that there is no hope? Or can the people of God be restored to genuine worship. That is what we were created for. And throughout Isaiah's book, he has been concerned to bring God's people to an awareness of the fact that they, we, those sinners, though idolaters, can know God. Isaiah challenged the people of God then, and he challenges us now as to the true nature of worship. And he points us to this time when worship will be finally restored to its rightful state in a new creation. What is true worship? That is the question that Isaiah poses and answers in this final chapter. What is true worship? True worship, number one, begins with a love for God himself. That's what we see in the first couple of verses. You might think that sounds terribly obvious, and uh, in a sense it is. But it's important that we make the point. True worship begins with a love for God himself, not a love of a God of our own imagination or invention. That was the problem for the people of God in Isaiah's day. That's the problem that the people of God who experienced the exile had. They were worshipping a God of their own invention. They were not worshipping the true and living God. That's why they ignored the prophet's warnings about the coming exile. Well, we're the the people of God, they they reasoned. We're the the people of God, that's not going to happen to us. They they ignored the warnings. That that is why they were so confused, so disillusioned when the exile finally happened. When the Babylonians did invade and capture Jerusalem, when the exile came about, their entire worldview was shattered. We thought we were the people of God. How, How can this have happened to us? You see, the problem all along was that they had a faulty view of God. Their so-called worship was not based on a sincere love for God himself. Their worship was built upon the God of their imagination, their invention. But true worship begins with a love for God himself. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Genuine worship begins by establishing that the God we worship is like nothing else we experience. He stands apart from and above all of the reality of which we are conscious. We live and we breathe what we can see and feel. And yet God is above and beyond it all. As we sung earlier on, he's incomparable, he's indescribable. God is enthroned in the heavens. He's outside of our vision. He's beyond our grasp. He is the God whose hands have placed billions of stars in the universe. He is the God who stretched out the skies and sits enthroned beyond them. Remember what Isaiah himself wrote in chapter 40. Who, with whom will you compare God? He is incomparable. He is the Lord, the God about whom Paul wrote to Timothy. He is the King eternal, immortal, invisible. We cannot grasp the magnitude of those words, can we? Eternal. He is 
without beginning. He has always been. Before the heavens and the earth were created, he is. He's immortal. Not only was the, does he have no beginning, he will have no end. He, he does not need to be created. He exists in and of himself. He's invisible. We cannot see him. We cannot get the measure of him. He lives in inapproachable light and glory. There is none like him. And our feeble words cannot express how great our God is. Heaven is his throne. He's above and beyond all reality that we are conscious of in the here and now. We have an impulse to want to make God understandable we'd like God in a box we'd like him in a nice neat uh, kind of category that we can understand nice neat boundaries a God that we can get to grips with a God we can understand but the God the the true the living God that the Bible reveals to us he is not like that he and if we do not begin with God's immortality God's incomprehensibility then what we will end up with is a God of our own imagination or invention. And the trouble is, that is what so many people do. You go outside of this building and knock on doors up and down the street. You'd get turned away because nobody wants you near them. But if you did it in any normal circumstances, and you knock on people's doors, and you ask them what God is like, you will get presented with a God of their own imagination. What they think God is like. Ask them what Christianity is, and you'll get a religion of their own imagination. You'll you'll get a cultural religion that is based around a God of their own invention. That is a story that is replicated up and down this country. It's replicated across the world. It's been the case throughout history. Because it is the default position of the human heart to create a God that we can understand. A God we can get to grips with. A God we can do business with on our own terms. And yet God calls us to come to him as he really is. To come to him on his terms. Christianity, of course, doesn't call us to leave our brains at the door. But it does call us to come and lay down our human wisdom. To lay down our desire to understand God. And simply and humbly come and acknowledge that he is who he says he is. You see, God is challenging his own people through Isaiah's words. He's challenging us. Do we we know him? Do we love this true and living God? Or do we actually love a God of our own invention? True worship begins with a love for God himself. We need a right idea of who he is. Uh, And that's why God is challenging his people through Isaiah. What what does he say? Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? God is talking about the temple. The glorious temple that had been built by King Solomon. uh, The temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple that had been the pinnacle of Jerusalem. The center point of Israel's worship life. And for the exiles who, uh, who returned, what was their number one aim? It was to rebuild the temple. Why was that? Well, it was because in their understanding of God, the temple is God's home. The temple is the place that God lived. The temple is the place that we can go and meet with him. Notice I said 
in their understanding of God. Because that that was the problem. That's the problem that God, through Isaiah, is challenging in verses 1 and 2. What is this house? What is this temple? Is, Is this building really where I am to be contained? Is this really the box you think I fit into? Now the Jews in exile had had no place to worship. They'd had no temple. They were devastated. They believed that God was fixed in his temple. So in order to have an encounter with God, you needed to go there. And God has been laying it on the line with his people. Get real. You need a right understanding of who I am. And if you do that, you will soon realize that I am not confined to a building. I am not a God who can be put in that kind of box. You are worshipping a God of your own invention. The God you love is not me, God says. I'm not containable. I'm enthroned in the heavens. The earth is my footstool. I'm not contained in a a temple made by human hands. Now that is not to say that God was not interested in the temple. God had given the temple as his gracious gift to his people. He had not ordered them to build it. King David desired to build a temple for the Lord. God didn't demand it, but he did permit it. And when the temple had been built, not not by David, of course, but by his son Solomon, when the temple had been built, God blessed it. He filled it with his glory. But he was not fixed there. He cannot be contained there. The Jews had the wrong idea about the temple because they had the wrong idea about God. And this building became a focal point for them. Without it, they felt bereft. To them, it was was as if God had left them because the temple was destroyed. God, of course, through Isaiah, has been trying to get his people to understand that he has not left them. He's not abandoned them. He is still there, and he is still very much knowable. If only they will come to him on his terms. But they've made a God of their own imagination. Their worship did not begin with a love for God himself. It began with a God that they had invented. True worship must begin with a love for God himself. So may we be humble worshippers. Who come to understand that we cannot understand him. That we cannot grasp him that we cannot contain him. Second, true worship is characterized by listening to God's word. You might have to flick it on, guys, at the back. That's what we see in verses 2 to 6. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. True worship is characterized by humbly listening to the word of God. I remember when I first started at university uh, and I went along to the Christian Union, I was pretty startled really. I went into the room uh, and uh, there were no chairs uh, in the room, there were just some cushions and beanbags scattered around. Okay, that's not the, that might be okay, but let's see what goes on. There was some music playing in the background on CD, there were a few people singing along, others just were laying on the floor listening to the music. There was a few people dancing in one corner. I thought, this is all pretty weird. I was assured I was in the right place. This was the Christian Union, they said. What was going on? Well, I was promptly informed this was a worship evening. 
There was no Bible, let alone one being opened. Just music, singing, dancing, meditating. The only reason I kept going back was because I was convicted in my spirit something needed to be done about it. By the time, two and a half years later, my term as president of the Christian Union had come to an end, I learned that my vice president uh, joined the CU with exactly the same idea. And he said to me on our last day serving together, he said, the Bible is now central. It was inconceivable to us that we could be worshipping without listening. That's not to say that singing is not right or helpful or important. The Bible commands us, of course, to worship God in song. Music stirs the emotions. It awakens part of our human psyche and gives us a vehicle by which we can respond to God. Uh, And the reality is that we learn a huge amount of our theology from what we sing. Singing is not only responsive, singing teaches us. But too often in our Christian way of thinking, worship means just singing. The trouble is, if that is all worship is, then it becomes very subjective. And people leave churches or they choose churches based on the worship. I was saying to somebody the other evening, I don't really like the term worship leader, but I can't find a better one. But that just plays into the the trap. We need to be careful not to understand that worship is just that. Because in God's sight, worship is characterized not just by our singing, but by our listening. Trembling at his word. Cannot separate the two. There's contrast described in these verses between the true worshiper and the false worshiper. The trouble is the false worshippers don't think they're false. They don't realize the problem. That was the case with the people of God in Isaiah's day. They did not realize that in God's sight they were false Worshippers. Why? Because although they did the outward things, their hearts were hard. They were not listening to the word of God. It's like the person who says, I really enjoyed church today. The worship was great. I really felt like I worshipped God today. And you ask them, what was the sermon around and they, about? And they say, I don't know. The preacher was dull and boring. Have they really worshipped God? There's no listening, no obeying God's word. Have they really worshipped? These are the ones I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit who tremble at my word, God says. True worshippers are humble people with broken spirits who come before the Lord eager to listen to what he has to say to them. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty. And if we come with that kind of heart, then in the Bible we will hear God speak to us. Contrast that with the false worshippers God describes. Look at verse 3. They are making sacrifices. Outwardly, they're doing all the right things. They're They're the sort of people who come to church. They look like they're engaging in worship. They look like they're clearly doing business with God. Outwardly, they're doing all the right kind of things, but what does God say? Whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. Beneath the outward ritual, the heart is rebellious. The heart is hard. The heart is heinous in God's sight. And God, therefore, despises that person's worship Even though they are doing the right thing outwardly, he despises their worship because they're not listening to him. 
It's a bit like the parable Jesus told of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, of course, came so proudly before God, didn't he? And he was rejected. The tax collector who comes humbly, fully aware of his own spiritual emptiness before God. Those who outwardly worship but whose hearts are hard, God says they delight in their abominations. They're taking great delight in their so-called worship. It excites them. And yet God is horrified by it. He's repulsed by it. You can have the most exciting, upbeat, lively service of worship, full of people whose emotions are stirred. But if they are people whose hearts are hard and resistant to God's word, they are not worshipping. They're delighting in what they think is worshipping. They're delighting in what they think pleases God, but to God it's an abomination. I'm reminded of the story of a deaf old man who got a new hearing aid. After the service, the minister asked him how he was getting on with him, and the man was still straining to hear. And then he said, oh, wait a minute, let me turn it back on. I switched it off during the sermon to save the battery. Yeah, many people don't need hearing aids to switch off. What is the distinguishing mark between the true and the false worshippers? Verse 4, for when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. To the Israelites in Isaiah's day, God says, you think you are worshipping. You think you're worshipping me, pleasing me with all these sacrifices in the temple, but you're not listening to my word. And so your worship is evil and displeased. True worship is characterized by listening to God's word. There's a cautionary tale in verses 5 and 6, though, and that is that those who are true worshippers will face criticism and mockery. But astonishingly, verse 5, it will come from your own people. So often the case, isn't it? It's from within the professing church that we see and we hear people mocking the word of God. They add to it. They subtract from it. They reinterpret it. And it's from within the professing church that we hear mockery coming against those of us who hold to the word of God. Back when uh, I was reintroducing the Bible to the life of the Christian Union at university, I remember one, one liberal Christian coming to me and saying, Tim, you're such a fundamentalist. I took it as a compliment. But Isaiah 4 warns us what to expect. Your own people, those who are professing Christians, will mock us for listening to the word of God. You see, true worship goes completely against the flow. It is profoundly counterintuitive, but true worship is characterized by listening to the word of God. Thirdly, true worship produces a longing for God's future. Verse 7 through to the end of the chapter, Isaiah talks of the church like a mother giving birth. And it's a miraculous birth. Look, it's an unnatural birth. Whoever has heard of such a thing, a mother giving birth before she goes into labor? Can a country be born in a day? What? But that's what happens, Isaiah says. What is he foretelling? Well, he's predicting a day when the people of God will be born in a day. And God will rejoice over them and bring them peace and comfort. The day of Pentecost gave a glimpse of that day when the church was born explosively. And over over 3,000 people were added to their number. The new covenant people of God was formed all at once. And verse 10, look, urges us to rejoice in that fact. Rejoice at the thought of this. Those who love the church rejoice. 
Those who long for the glory of the church, rejoice. Be glad. Verses 11 and 12 picture the church nourishing the people of God for their life in the here and now. Overflowing abundance. Rejoice in that. There's comfort for the people of God in the church. Rejoice in that. And then verse 15, look, there's an announcement of the coming of the Lord. The son born to a virgin, the Lord who is heralded in chapter 40, the suffering servant of chapter 53, he will come in glory, come in fire and fury. And so Isaiah is pointing us not only to the age in which we currently live, the church age, he's pointing us to the second coming of the Lord Jesus, the sure and certain return of Jesus, when he will come in glory and in judgment. Jesus will come to judge the world and gather his own people. And it will be a great gathering of people from every nation, tribe and tongue, people whom he is gathering to come and see God's glory. This gathering begins now as he calls us into God's family. Verse 19, God has set a sign among them, the sign of a crucified and risen saviour. And then he sends his gathered people to the nations. Isaiah lists some of the nations in the world that he's familiar with in his own day, but there are many more, of course. What's in view in verse 19 is the gospel going to the nations, including the Gentiles. Isn't that our goal? That the gospel might go to the ends of the earth? That's the vision, that's the mission the disciples took up in the book of Acts. That's the work to which we, the church today, are called to give ourselves, to get the gospel to the nations. Uh, and the nations have been hearing for 2,000 years. People from every nation have been hearing and coming and responding to the gospel. Remote tribes in Africa, vast numbers in China, even obscure little islands like our own. And still the gospel is going out. And we go. We go to our families, we go to our communities, we go to our workplaces, we go to our cities, we go to our countries, we go to... Other countries, carrying the sign that God has given us, we are gathered into the people of God and sent out to take the gospel to the nations. God is fulfilling this great vision that Isaiah has. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your people from all the nations. God is fulfilling that vision. They will come to worship God. This is a great picture of the gathering at the end of time. You see, Isaiah ends where the Bible ends, with the great gathering in of all of God's people, the redeemed people of God who trust in the shed blood of Jesus, an unnaturally birthed community. God is rejoicing at what he is doing. There's a picture of glory and judgment side by side and we are called to be part of it true worship produces a longing for God's future this is where we ended up this morning but do we long for that day the day when Jesus returns in all his glory the day when all of this will finally be fulfilled the day that Jesus comes to judge the world and put right all that is wrong the day when he will glorify his precious people and then look at verse 22 then, then the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me Isaiah ends where the Bible ends with a transformed universe our inheritance 
a place that will be ours for eternity. God's plan has always been to bring the nations into his kingdom to share in a new heaven and a new earth. And this new creation will endure. It will not pass away. That is our destiny. And true, genuine worship directs our hearts there. True worship reorientates our hearts to that coming certainty. True worship lifts our gaze from the present to the future, from the known to the unknown, from the seen to the unseen. True worship lets our hearts soar to that glorious hope that is to come. To a future of which the church is just a tiny, tiny glimpse. But then on that day there will be glory forever. On that day everything will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That is our destiny. True worship begins with a love for God himself. It's characterized by listening to God's word. And it produces a longing for God's future. But Isaiah ends with a very solemn note. And Isaiah would not be satisfied with a preacher preaching his book without this solemn note. Verse 24 is is poetic language, but it's a description not of heaven, but of hell. We live in interesting times as we watch people panic buying and self-isolating. And it's intriguing that you mention the coronavirus and everybody prepares for the worst. You warn them about eternity and nobody listens. But Isaiah is ever the evangelist and he does not want us to forget that there is a hell to be spurned as well as a heaven to be gained. He does not want us to forget that our most urgent task is to warn people. As he closes his book, he holds out these two worldviews, true worship and false. And he holds out their two destinies, heaven and hell. Have you trusted him? Are you trusting him? Then we'll meet once again at that great gathering in Emmanuel's land. Shall we pray and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for all that you have done for us in coming into this world. We thank you that you have bought for us an eternity that we do not deserve and cannot earn. We pray that you would fill us with longing for that day. We pray that you would help us to be true worshippers. True worshippers who love you for who you are. True worshippers who listen to your word. True worshippers who long for your future. Fill us with hope and send us out, we pray. Amen. Let's sing as we close uh, an old hymn, which I'm reliably informed hardly anybody knows anymore, but we will sing it anyway. Uh, The sands of time are sinking. It's a a hymn that 